Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today I'm joined by Kendrick Vaughn, also known as Kenny Vaughn. What, what do you go by? Kenny works, man. I can I can do Kenny. I can do Kendrick. I had a little midlife crisis in the middle of business school, so I went from Kenny to Kendrick, but we'll do Kenny today. It's, it's good. <laughs> All right. Kenny is our full-time MBA graduate of 2016, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you've been in the military your entire life. You could say that. 12 years. Graduated from West Point in 2008 and have been rolling ever since. So it's it's what I know. But I tell you what, that's that's part of the reason I was so excited to, to share my experience at Haas because I feel like that has been such a significant chapter of my life, um, opening up my eyes to the world in, in a way that I didn't even anticipate prior to coming to business school. So um, super excited to be here speaking with you today and, and appreciate you taking the time. You know, Kenny, I would love to hear more about your background, your family. I know your father was also in the military. Can you share a little bit about your origins? Yeah, for sure. So it, it's funny that you asked this question because this is a question that that I actually hadn't spent a ton of time thinking about till earlier this year when things kind of slowed down with, with the coronavirus. And, you know, I just started asking my parents about some family history. I'm originally an army brat. So my dad was in the military for 25 years. I went to four different high schools in three different states. I've lived overseas. I mean, I got a chance to see a little bit of everything growing up. Yeah. But that was really the depth of my understanding of our family history. And, and it wasn't until probably the beginning of this year where I started to ask some deeper questions about our family roots, our family tree. Come to find out that, you know, my great-grandfather served in the military. He served in, in World War II, was a non-commissioned officer for the Quartermaster Corps. My grandfather also served in the military. He was in the Army Air Corps, served in World War II. My father, as I mentioned, was in the military as West Point graduate as well. So just kind of hearing some of those stories that as much as I hate to admit, was the first time that I'm hearing a lot of these stories was mind blowing to me because I think it put into perspective how I ended up where I am today with just the desire to serve and really continue a family tradition that I didn't realize was as long standing as it was. Wow. Did they everyone go to West Point? No. So my, my uncle was actually the first member of our family to go to West Point. He graduated in the class of 1977. My father graduated in the class of 1983. And for me growing up, I, I felt like West Point was really all I knew about the college experience. Because when we went to uh, to my father's reunions, we'd go visit West Point. And I'm thinking, hey, this is one of the only options. So West Point, that's, that's where it's got to be. And yeah. so I kind of just grew up wanting to be like my dad. You know, and yeah. I think much like a, a lot of young men, you, you look to your dad and that's kind of what you aspire. That's, that's the benchmark of success right there. Yeah. Just seeing how he lived his life was tremendously inspiring to me. And I kind of picked up on that piece. On my mother's side of the family, so my mother is a uh, first generation immigrant from Dominica. Hmm. She came over to the United States April 17th, 1975 from a very, very small country, uh, rural upbringing. I mean, this is the type of place where you go down to the river and you're like washing your laundry down the river and you're, you're carrying the, the stuff back to your house. It's, it's one of those places. 
and she immigrated in the in the mid seventies to uh, Connecticut. So she flew into JFK, going from this very rural place to now the heart of New York City, trying to yeah. get adjusted to a new culture and a new country. So those are all pearls of wisdom that I'm just now at the age of 34, um, starting to glean from my parents and my grandparents. I'm personally curious, you know, being an army brat, you know, where, what are the, all the places that you've lived? How much time do you have? You got a lot of time. <laughs> you know, a lot of these things, especially where we grew up, right? Yeah. They, no. they have a huge impact on, on who we are. Yeah, um, for sure. And I moved here when I was seven from China and okay. my family, we moved around Michigan a little bit. And because uh, the school districts kept changing and just having that experience, having to make new friends constantly, right? I'm curious, you know, what it was like for you having to uh, moved around. So it's so interesting that you mentioned that because I was born in Fort Hood, Texas, lived in Fort Bliss, Texas. My family moved to a city called Mainz, Germany. From there, we moved to Monterey, California, where my dad went to the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, we lived in Huntsville, Alabama. We've lived in Herndon, Virginia, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Fort wow. Sill, Oklahoma. But in high school, I started off high school in a city called Huntsville. And the high school that I went to was called S.R. Butler. So it was in the urban part of Huntsville, which sounds interesting when you're talking about Alabama, but it does actually have an urban portion of the city. And that was an eye-opening experience for me because coming from a military background, you grow up in military towns and you know, everyone's kind of cut from the same cloth, but going to, to Butler, it was a majority minority school. So it's probably about 85% black students. And it was, it was such an eye-opening experience for me because you realize that your people have exposure to different experiences growing up. Right. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, I had a somewhat sheltered upbringing. I mean, just with the military family, you move around so much, you, you have a very close-knit nuclear family. But when we went to, to Huntsville, these kids are coming from some tough beginnings, man. It's, it's very right. humble beginnings, single-family households, folks working to support their families. You see all that, and you see the challenges that people who are the exact same ages as you are having to face in high school. Yeah. And that was an eye-opening experience. My sophomore year, we went to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. My junior year, we went to uh, Herndon, Virginia, which is actually in Fairfax County. And that was the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Huntsville. In Herndon, it's a pretty affluent part of the country right there outside of D.C., you know, very diverse high school. And just the aspirations that people had at Herndon High School were so much different. You know, you got people talking about Ivy League colleges. You have folks who are starting to study for the SAT in, in seventh and eighth and ninth grade. College readiness just rolls off of everyone's tongue and completely different experience. And this is this is really one of the first times that it sunk in how much variance, how wide the spectrum is in terms of what people leave high school equipped with. And then I graduated yeah. from high school in Madison, Alabama at, at Bob Jones High School. The last thing that I would say about that is I just, I just would agree with you, man, that I think for me going to four different high schools, the biggest thing was is you're always the new kid. And mm. it's like you can either 
be outgoing and personable and try to make friends or it could be a lonely year. So I think for me that that has absolutely shaped my personality in a very good way. I think obviously it, it stinks, you know, having to move away physically from friends that you're close with. But on the other end, and I'd be interested to hear if this was your experience too, I think it is added incentive to keep long-standing relationships because you never know when you'll bump into somebody down the road. You never know where your paths may cross again. So I've always tried to maintain, you know, those friendships even from a, from a distance. No, I, I completely agree. It, it makes you cherish the relationships and the bonds that you've built a lot more. 100%. Absolutely. So that's that's really powerful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. So from high school, you went on to West Point. Was there anything that you wanted to specialize in going to West Point? You know, what's funny about the service academies is that's not the first thing you're concerned with. When you first get there, you're going through something that's we call it cadet basic training. I know they call it different things at different service academies, but the first thing you're doing is like the first six weeks is hot and heavy military training. So, I mean, you show up, you get like 30 seconds to say bye to your parents and then people start yelling at you. <laughs> and it, But you know what's so funny about it is it was actually such a cool experience because you're doing things like rappelling out of helicopters, you're firing weapons, you're learning how to do land navigation. Uh, these once- in a lifetime type opportunities that, you know, as you're going through it, because you're going through it with peers, it doesn't seem like this crazy, amazing thing. But when you look back on it, you're like, wow, you know, we just did some amazing stuff over the course of this summer. So that's like your very first experience. But once you get into the school year, as, as crazy as it sounds, academically, it's pretty similar to a, a regular college. I think the main difference is that time is your most valuable asset because not only are you taking anywhere from 18 to 21, 24 credit hours, but you, you have to play a sport. You have military responsibilities. There's just, there's just different requirements that are always tugging at your time. And I think that was probably more so even than my major. I was an engineering management major. I think the biggest thing that I took away from West Point was the ability to have more things thrown on your plate than you have the time and the bandwidth to handle, and then figuring out how to prioritize, manage time, and assume risk in different areas of responsibility. So that was definitely one of the biggest takeaways. I mean, it's a great academic experience, but I think yeah. more so than what you get in the classroom, the leadership that you get, as well as some of those intangible skills are the biggest things that I took away from my experience at West Point. Right on my desk, Jocko's Discipline Equals Freedom. I've been rereading it because uh, civilian life, we take so many things for granted. We think that, you know, what we're dealing with stress is the most stressful thing. Oh, He's like, man. you haven't seen stress, <laughs> you know? And the whole idea is that, you know, we're not tapping into our full potential, right? That's really what he's trying to get at. He's not trying to mock you know, civilian life or anything like that. It's just that, you know, people are really not or even close to reaching their p potential or what they could do. So, you know, what's so it's so funny that you mentioned that because I think there's beauty in the spectrum too. So absolutely going to West Point, there is so much structure. There is so much rigidity that comes from that experience that when you leave, you feel like that's commonplace. And 
I remember even going to my first few classes at Haas and I'm like five minutes early guy, you know, you're like, get your seat in the front seat of the class. You know, the professor walks in and like people are still talking. You're like, if this was West Point, man, this is a completely different dynamic. So I'm, you know, I'm like going through a little bit of anxiety here the first couple of days. But in that very same breath, man, I have so much respect for the Cali vibes, for the you know, sometimes it's it's good not to take life or yourself too serious because in those moments you realize that there is something to be said about the peace that comes from not having that rigid kind of strict discipline. And for me, that's what California was. I feel like every part of this country kind of has a different vibe. You know, I'm, I'm emerging from Huntsville, Alabama, coming from the South, everything is slow motion. I mean, it's is very laid back. People move slow. People talk slow. It's just it's part of the culture, right? Yeah. I feel like I feel like California, especially Berkeley, there is such a mellow and calming energy that comes with being in that space that I feel like you almost have no choice but to tap into your inner creativity. My wife studies East Asian medicine, so like your chi is in balance, like all these things that that just allow you to tap into an inner self that you might not have even realized was there. That's what I loved about the Berkeley experience. And I've taken with me into my military experience subsequently. It's been it's been awesome to see the, the combination of the two. Was it intentional that you came to the West Coast to, to Berkeley? I, I mean, West Point is in New York. You know, uh, Huntsville is in Alabama. Were you seeking out a, a West Coast experience, or was it? Uh, I'm curious what the background story to that is. So that was a very deliberate decision. So part of it, just as a little bit of backstory. So my my wife is actually a West Point graduate too. So I'm the class of 2008. She's class 2005. And at the time, our number one criteria in choosing schools was we wanted to make sure that we both could start graduate school at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you look at a lot of the top East Asian medicine schools, a lot of them are in California. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge part of the decision-making process. But then the second piece was we we both felt like we had had that very structured experience. I think both just from going to West Point, but then also being in the military for six or seven years at that point, we really craved a shakeup and a change of pace and the opportunity to embrace everything that is California, everything that is the Bay Area. And, you know, when that opportunity afforded itself through Haas, I mean, we we hit the ground running and never looked back. I mean, you having been at West Point and experiences that you experience, you, you know, you, you do have plenty of leadership experience. I'm curious, you know, what made you uh, decide? And, and maybe this is for, you know, any potential uh, prospective students that may be vets or maybe of the military background, but what, what is, what was the incentive to, to get a business degree? Yeah. So f- for me personally, I felt like I was in the point in my career where I needed some type of professional growth. I've, I had just finished uh, Company Command, which is it's it's almost like one of the pinnacle positions for uh, junior leaders in the Army. And 
got a chance to have that experience, but it's almost like you can just feel, it's like an innate feeling when it's time for another stage of growth. You know, the things that you're doing, you feel pretty proficient at, you're like, okay, I just got done going through this very challenging experience. I'm tremendously thankful for it, but I don't want to become stagnant. And the stagnation has always been a fear. As we were looking at the different opportunities to grow personally and professionally, business school just stuck out as the number one way to do that. And, you know, so I'm watching videos, I'm going on poets and quants. And the first thing that really just stuck out to me was, I don't know if this is a strange thing to, to do, but I just started watching videos of the deans of all the top business schools. So I'm like watching the dean of Stanford, I'm watching the dean of Yale and Harvard. And then I get to Berkeley Haas and I come across a video of Dean Lyons, Dean Rich Lyons, and not just the content of what he was saying, but the energy and the conviction in which he was saying it, it caught me completely off guard. Right. I said, man, there's, there's something here. There, there's, there's something here that I need to spend more time looking into. And he was talking about path bending leadership and just what it meant to have a business degree as we look at an ever evolving society. And mm -hmm. the way he laid it out was so eloquent. I went to the website and the next thing that I saw was the, the defining principles. Yep. And for me as a military guy, this was like heaven because you know, for us, we like the structure. It's like, okay, tell us what you want. Tell us what you expect from us, and then we'll go <laughs> do it, right? So I'm looking at these things, and I'm like, oh, wow, question the status quo. Okay, confidence without attitude. Okay, beyond yourself. Students, oh, this, this, I like this. I mean, you know, <laughs> this, this sounds like something I can do, you know? Yeah. And from there, I, I just think the rest is, it, this is going to sound a little bit crazy, but it honestly feels like a beautiful love story after that mm. because this this all happened this is probably the end of 2013 ended up coming to days at Haas which is the admin weekend with with my family it was the first time I got a chance to actually come to the campus and we had visited a couple of campuses before but this was the first place I brought the whole crew, man. I brought my wife. I brought my two kids. My mother-in-law came with me. This is every decision in the Vaughn house was like a family decision. So we're out there. We're all out there in the Bay and we show up and these, these MBA students are like picking up my kids, giving them piggyback rides. You know, they're like laughing and giggling. Like, you know, I've got professors that are pulling my mom to the side and having these intellectual conversations. And for me, in that moment, we knew this is a place we have to go. There's no question. There is no doubt in my mind that if we make this decision, every subsequent decision after this is going to be a great decision because, right. of the, because of the energy. The people were amazing. And it was such a – sorry to get my soapbox here, but this is – you get me fired up about a place that I love a lot. So, so I think more than anything else – it was the humility, man. Hmm. It was the humility. I mean, you, you start having some conversations. These are some very accomplished, deep, 
intellectually stimulating people. They've got goals. They've got aspirations. They've got dreams. And yet you hold a conversation. You don't feel intimidated, right? You don't feel the need to whip out every accolade that you've ever accomplished. Or It's just, it is such a welcoming and inviting feeling that uh, a lot of the other stressors that you can bring with you to the MBA experience, they seem to melt away. Yeah. Because there's some brilliant people that you're sitting in the classroom with, but at the end of the day, you always felt like we were in this thing together. Mm-hmm. And our success was not defined by an individual success, but we got to help each other out, man. I mean, my, my Rolodex has is, is got to be lit after this thing. Everybody got to be eating out here, right? So that was, that was the number one feeling that just stuck through that whole experience. You know, the Haas experience, as with most things in life, is that, uh, you know, you get out of it what you put into it. Mm-hmm. And I think you're someone who put a lot into, into Haas. And so in kind, you got a lot out of it, right? I'm really curious to hear what your journey has been like after graduating. So the the cool thing, the, the cool thing that I think was both a gift and a curse of returning to the military after graduating from Haas was, I think I was afforded a unique level of stability and predictability we were in school and that is something that i tried to never take for granted because i understand the the anxiety the challenges associated with trying to find a job student loans like i never took that for granted for my classmates so for me as someone who was walking into a job that i was excited about i i always just tried to take that energy and bring some level of of peace or consolation to my classmates after graduation, I ended up coming back to West Point and working as the the director of diversity admissions and outreach. And in that role, my primary job was to reach out to underserved communities across the country, try to spread the word about the United States Military Academy, and ultimately matriculate the most diverse class possible. So we really focused on African-Americans, Latinx, Native American students. We did work within the Asian community as well. We really were trying to bring in the most diverse class possible at the academy. So for me, I always tell folks, I would have done that job for free. To be able to give back to a place that gave so much to me. I mean, West Point was a foundational experience of my life. And now to be able to play some small part of being a part of that decision-making process for some of the best and brightest young men and women across the country, that was a tremendous blessing. And to meet the families, to meet the parents, and just see how much it meant to be seen, that was something that I didn't expect going into the job. Is you, you Just for a little bit of context, my wife's from a very small town in, in Louisiana. It's called Hannah, Louisiana. And she found out about West Point because her aunt was in the reserves. And I remember her mom bringing in this pamphlet about West Point and saying, hey, you're going to go to West Point. And 
no exposure to the place prior to that conversation. She goes to her guidance counselor, tells her this is what she wants to do. And the guidance counselor tells her that she should probably reevaluate her college options. And the reason I share that story is because having worked in this space for four years, it pains me to think back on how many conversations I've had with students who said the exact same thing. Major Vaughn, I'm so glad you picked up the phone or your team picked up the phone and called. You know, I didn't even think I was competitive for West Point. I didn't, I wasn't going to apply because I didn't think I could get in. And there's so many unnecessary barriers that are put in place for these tremendously talented students to get a great college education. That is what my team and I spent the majority of our time doing is trying to break down those barriers, trying to change the narrative, trying to dispel common misperceptions to ultimately bring the most talented class into West Point. And that was very much a full-time job. Absolutely. It's, it's, it, it was one of those things where it didn't feel like a job. It felt more like a, a passion project where for the past four years, it's just something that's constantly on your mind because you believe in it so much. And that's my experience post Haas. How can we help our listeners, right, who are alumni of Haas, who are leaders in the workplace or leaders in, you know, different organizations, uh, profit or nonprofit? What are some strategies and uh, frameworks to help them um, do what you did for West Point, but do it in their organization? Or do better at even Haas, yeah. right? So not to sound cliche, but I think this is absolutely the space where we have to question the status quo. Because the status quo for so long has looked a very certain way. It's been very advantageous for a small group of individuals. Mm-hmm. And I think for a very long time, society at large has turned a blind eye to a lot of things that people are starting to bring to the light right now. One of the greatest things that that I've actually appreciated about this time is I've had some phenomenal conversations with my classmates since all of these challenges have really transpired from the coronavirus to what's going on with racial inequity and some of the community policing issues we've seen. And I think what's intimidating sometimes is there can almost be like a sense of paralysis Mm-hmm. Because you feel like there has to be a very defined cause that you're working towards. Okay, how do I get involved in some nonprofit? How do I, what cause do I need to donate to? What What is it on a national scale that I need to do? And for me, what I've always encouraged people to do is look in the spaces where you have influence. I mean, as you're talking to your family members and your family members are coming back at you with some questions, with some things. You're just like, mm, Uncle, I don't know if that sound right, brother. I, mm-hmm. I, what, what you saying right now? I mean, I, I understand, but look, I mean, even because all this stuff starts with conversations, man. I yeah. mean, it starts with conversations. And as those conversations leave our households and trickle into our workspaces, it's trusting that you are already operating in the space that you're operating into to have great impact. You don't have to go out and 
you know, march in downtown Oakland or march in, I'm in Louisville. You ain't got to go march in Louisville to have an impact. If you are working in real estate and you understand that, you know, affordable housing is a real issue, that falls under your wheelhouse and your expertise. So how do you become a champion for that in your workspace? And I think the moment people realize that there is so much inherent power that you have with your own unique experience, that's when I think we're going to see just a transformation. I think this is an inflection point already, but Mm -hmm. I feel like when people realize that they don't have to look externally to be a part of the solution, that you have all the tools that you need right now in this very moment to have sweeping and significant impact in your household and your community, man, now we're cooking with Crisco. Um, So that's been the center of a lot of the conversations that I've had. The one other thing that I would encourage people who want to be a part of the solution to do is just, just educate yourself, man. Like for me, I mean, I'm an African-American male and I've learned more in the past two months just from all the documents that have been circulating, all the documentaries. I mean, there have been some people who have been doing this work for such a long time. And I think until you understand the context, until you understand all of the factors that went into creating the moment that we're in right now, it is almost impossible to come up with any type of long-term sustainable solution because you have to understand how to unpack the big knot that's been done in this society, right? So for me, I mean, that's that's really what I've been doing, man. I've been going back reading the Declaration of Independence. I've been reading the Constitution. I'm going back looking at speeches Barack Obama gave about race in 2008. And, you know, nothing happens in isolation. Right. Can I share one more quick story with you? Oh, you can share as many stories as you want. Uh, All right. So when I found out that my great-grandfather was in the military, my grandfather was in the military, I started asking my dad, I said, well, you know, why, why did they join the military? And you know, what's crazy is the answer rolled right off his tongue and he said, for African-Americans in this country, there were not a lot of ways, not a lot of professions where you could walk into the profession, receive equal pay, have the opportunity for upward mobility and kind of have all these things. Now, the challenge that I didn't realize was also inherent in that is for my grandfather, for example, he served during World War II. And, you know, we talk about how this was a inflection point for the United States. As you look at all these veterans returning from the war, they're having access to military benefits. So the VA loan to buy a house, you know, GI Bill to get an education. And all these great packages are being rolled out to, to essentially create the middle class that we see today. Mm-hmm. And what you realize is that African-Americans did not receive that hero's welcome. They didn't receive those benefits. You know, when he came to Long Island, there was a certain neighborhood that he was allowed to move in and there was one that he was not based on language that was written in the city zoning, right? And so as you look at 
these decisions that were made and how that now translates into generational wealth, how that translates into access to opportunity and upward mobility, the access to get a bachelor's level education or to pass along a piece of property to your next generation. Mm -hmm. These are all things that had significant impact on people of color in this country. And as I'm talking to my parents and my grandparents, I'm just now starting to realize, oh man, this, this is huge. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that I think people are just now starting to really open their mind to take a deeper look at and peel back the layers of that onion because it is not by accident that as you look at inner cities, you know, you go to Oakland, you go to Detroit, you go to Chicago, you go to Atlanta, you always go to the most impoverished part of these cities. All the people look the same. You go to the wealthiest part of these cities. The majority of these people look the same. Mm -hmm. And it is the... It is the culmination of a lot of intentional decisions that led to where we are today. So as a society, I think, in my personal opinion, it's important that we are deliberate and we're strategic and we leverage not only our personal resources, but the resources of our country. I mean, the government wields so much power to be able to to write and to fix some of these challenges, public school system. I mean, spending four years working in higher education, there are so many disparities that exist in just public education. And and if we could just take an honest and critical look at the variance that exists there, man, we've we've gone such a long way. We've gone such a long way. Don't, Don't get us started on you know, the criminal justice system. I mean, that's a whole nother can of worms there, but we, we got to take the long play here. You know, yeah. we, we got to take the long play and I'm excited of the energy and the focus that I've seen. I mean, I've got, I got to brag on one of my classmates because we were co-presidents of the black business student association while we were at Haas. The work that Elise Douglas is doing right now, raising over a hundred thousand dollars in capital for black owned businesses to really get back on their feet after the effects of the coronavirus and you know some of the stuff that's going on i mean that's the level of ingenuity the level of commitment that is just so inspiring to see right now and my hope is that this isn't a flashpoint this is something that we can carry the momentum on and continue to see this through so that we as a nation can more fully step into the promises of those founding documents. You know, that life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of sexual orientation, hey, regardless of zip code, when you are an American you are stepping into these promises regardless of what bucket that you fall into and we can do that come on now come on now we're talking about something brother hopefully we'll look back on this time 
20 years from now, 40 years from now, 60 years from now, as we're talking to our grandkids and our great grandkids, and they ask us about what it was like to grow up in the 2020s. Let me tell you, look, we had to, we had to go through some tough times. We had, we had some unspeakable pain, but because of that movement and that momentum, the world is the place that we see today, right? So I want to go back to solutions, what this moment means, what we can do to contribute, you know, should we read a book? Should we, I I think it goes back to some of the basic things that we learned at Haas, man. Just some of the basics, just, just, just be the best person that you can be. And, And what I mean by that is I had a very emotional moment about a month ago at work and it was the week after George Floyd was murdered and I had a, a work function which was pretty much it's called a hail and farewell but pretty much you say goodbye to the the people that are leaving you say hello to the folks that are coming so we've got a uh, phone call set up and my boss is a great person we've moved around different meetings for different things But this happened to be scheduled during George Floyd's funeral. So we are going around the office, you know, sharing what it means to have been a part of this great team and to make history and, you know, increase diversity at West Point. And I'm waiting for my turn to to speak. And in the background, I'm having to listen to Al Sharpton deliver the eulogy at George Floyd's funeral. And I think what was so difficult in that moment was the lack of understanding in terms of how difficult of a moment that was for not only my family, but for so many black families, I mean, that was such a heart-wrenching moment to be a part of. As people are going around and sharing their updates and like, hey, have you been? They're like, oh, this has been a great week. You know, things are going good. Things are going great, so on and so forth. And when they got to me, I was like, this has not been a great week. I mean, I I, 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 I stood in the living room with 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 my children today for eight minutes and 46 seconds as we observed a moment of silence for a man that could have been me, could have been my father, could have been my uncle, could have been my best friend. And to not understand the emotional trauma that comes from living in that moment and to continue on with business as usual, that was very difficult. So as you are in your workspaces, as you're going into your office, as you're going into your local grocery store, man, just take a moment. Take a moment to ask people how they're doing. And I always do this thing where when I ask somebody how they're doing, oh yeah, fine. I always ask a second time. I always ask twice because like, okay, everyone says fine. 
But no, I, I really want to know how you're doing. Like, I know this is this is a stressful time, not just for black folks, white folks stressing out too. I mean, it's stressful for everybody, right? Everyone's trying to figure out where we fit in this thing. So to simply take the extra 30 seconds, the extra 30 seconds to say, hey, man, like... I know it's been a couple of years. I know it's been a little while, but I just want to check on you. I just want to see how you're doing. You know, for your coworker that you may just see in passing, hey, man, I know, you know, we just have some water cooler talk every now and again, but, hey, I just want to do a little sanity check with you because I know it's it's a stressful time for everybody. And just just see where that conversation goes. Yeah. Because I I guarantee this stuff is not complex. The best things in life are so simple. Yeah. They are so simple, man. And when we as a society take the time to do not just not just for this particular issue, but I mean that's any issue, right? Like, you know, about a year ago it was immigration. So taking the time as we are experiencing these things at a macro level to do those check-ins, to have tough conversations, to step outside of our comfort zone and admit that might not be the subject matter expert in something and that's okay. We're going to flub it up. We may say something that's insensitive or politically incorrect, but if you go into it with the right intent, if you go into it with the right intent, with an open heart and a willingness to listen and not win an argument and not make a point and not have to be right. There is so much that can be learned that I have learned. I've learned from just shutting up and listening to people. Uh, man, I never thought about it like that. I never thought what it was like to be a white male in this country. I'm, I get it. I, I also need you to understand my experience, but I'm glad you shared with me too, because now we can help each other work towards a better society. Mm. And that is the biggest salute. If I had one thing, man, that's the biggest one right there. What you're doing right now, man, having these conversations with people, bringing people's stories to life, showing that people are layered and multidimensional and cannot be put in a box. That's what life is about. Because then you start to see the commonality. You start to see that, our differences are far outweighed by our common ground. And that is such a solid foundation. I think this brings this conversation back full circle as people who have been to multiple schools and moved around. It brings it back full circle because having experienced different backgrounds and different races and different cultures and different societies, you understand more than anybody else. That at the core, we're all the same, man. We we want to see the best for our families. We want to leave this place a little bit better than we found it for our kids. And we want to have a good time while we're doing it. Yeah. And when you unpack all the layers that exist that are intentionally placed by the silos that we live in and you start to unpack all these things, 
you realize that everybody at their core is the same. People are inherently good. Some folks look crazy, but 99.9% of people at their core are inherently good. Yeah. And if you go into every conversation with that belief, that that's all I did at Haas, man. That that is all I did at Haas was like, man, as a as a human being, I have so much respect for you. Let's just have a great conversation. Let's just see where it goes. Right. And if you use that as your starting point, whew, man, the world is your oyster. Everything else, icing on the cake. Life is easy. So that's that's my take on that particular topic. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you sharing all that. I um, I talked to Marco Lindsay. That's my dude right there. I love Marco. <laughs> and you know he educated me on anti-blackness. Mm. I started doing research into that, and I just realized even I have anti-blackness. Mm. I grew up with it, right? I was somehow taught this anti-blackness um, without even my knowledge, and 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 just taking all that and just catching not only myself but my family and correcting them really you know when when they um they would say oh you know well africa hasn't developed i'm just like well why is that yeah why is that right Mm -hmm. maybe because of colonialism right Mm -hmm. and learning you know from the bill gates documentary because they're trying to vaccinate children Mm -hmm. all that stuff and how they're the trouble they're dealing with is that these countries don't collaborate or these villages don't collaborate because arbitrary lines were drawn by Europeans yep. for African nations. Yep. It was like you're literally dividing villages yep. just because there, there was a river there and you're just like, nope, this yep. is going to be Congo and this is going to be something else, right? No regard to the implications. Yeah. And, it, and these have huge implications as to how a society develops or how society is oppressed or economically disadvantaged, right? And then and then reading more about generational wealth, which is something I think you talked about as well, and, and just denying people generational wealth. I had to educate, you know, my family on that. I said, you know, we don't have to think about that. When you go to the bank to get a loan, right? If, if, you, if you have the same background and qualifications as a black person, you know, this country historically has denied the black person. Yeah. We have not been denied that. And we're immigrants. Yeah, like, yeah. I wasn't even born in this country. Yeah. Right. It's it's so entrenched in our lived experience. And I think that's one of the biggest epiphanies that I've had that people have when we have these conversations is I don't think people have realized or are starting to realize until now how much of your lived experience is shaped by the color of your skin. Mm. In this country, how how yeah. much that drastically impacts the quality of life. The, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that made me so passionate about the work that I did when I was at West Point in diversity recruitment, as well as, you know, whatever the next step for our family would be, is just thinking about statistics. And one of the things that I always loved about Warren Buffett is the way that he described how he got to where he was in life is so eloquent. And he always talks about something called the embryonic or the genetic lottery, right? He said when he was born, 
there was a 5% chance we'd be born in the United States, just based on the global population. So 5% chance he's born in the United States, that puts you on a certain level. Mm-hmm. You know, there's another percentage that you're going to be born, you know, white. That puts you on another level. Then he's born male. So off the, the, the jump, there are these things that happen by no cause of his own that now put him in certain spheres of influence. And he yeah. talks about this. He talks about this at length. So as I look at, at myself, and I'm starting to, to look at some of the statistics for African-American or, or, or black men, that one in three statistic is the one that always, 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 I'm like, man, this is like the luck of the draw. Like one in three black men in this country are in prison. One in three. And I mean, 33%, man, that's a, you know, so for me, that's, I don't, I don't know how someone can hear that statistic and not be enraged, not be in in a, in assume, assume that man, Hey, these black men must just be some criminals, man. They must just be out there doing wrong. Like, I don't know what's going on in the black community, but hey, they got to get their stuff together. No, no. One in three, man. So for me, I look at I look at statistics like that, and that is my motivation. That's my motivation. Because as I look at my son, as I as I look at my grandson, we gotta get that. I mean, because it all deals with the family. Right, the the family structure, the family unit, is the crux upon which every other portion of society is built. Mm-hmm. And when you intentionally erode and tear at the fabric of families by incarcerating black men and leaving black mothers to be single mothers, breadwinners, raise children forego opportunities for advancement, further their education, you have hamstringed not only the parents, but the subsequent generation, right? And I think that's what's so hard about breaking this cycle, right? Is until you acknowledge that, hey, this is a huge contributor, let's just get families back together. How about we yeah. just start with that? Let's let's just reunite some families and see what that does to the black community and to some of the communities of color, right? Yeah. Um, because it's like I said, man. It just it it pains my heart to hear some of these 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 facts and statistics and know that, man, there is more that can be done to right some of these systemic wrongs. That right. That's the painful one to me, is I feel very fortunate to have grown up in a great family. Uh, you know, family is one of the most important things to me. I mean, I feel like my kids are getting a great upbringing, but I mean, I've got, I've got cousins that are in this situation. I've got, you know, I've got very close friends who are in this exact same situation. And you see, you see firsthand the tangible impacts that it has on these kids man spiritually emotionally mentally like we're asking 
these young people to do some very heavy lifting. And I think that is something that needs to be acknowledged and then worked on as well, too. You know, mentorship, man. Mentor somebody that don't look like you. Mentor somebody who didn't have the same access to opportunities that you did. You know, let them in into those spheres of influence that they might not have otherwise had access to. Because until you do that, it is almost impossible to a phrase that that I just really hate is pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That is the most absurd phrase because I'm telling you, man, people out here working, people are working hard, man. But when you don't have access to the same spheres of influence, it is almost impossible to pull yourself up. You know, when, when you don't have any money to invest and you're stuck in a cycle of renting property or you're stuck in a cycle of paying down, you know, debt. I mean, this, this is, this, these are the type of things that people are screaming for help for right now. Right, because this is what leads to these situations. It's not that people are out here just doing craziness and people want to be unlawful. It's not, man. It's out of necessity. If you have to choose between putting food on the table and because your kids haven't eaten in a couple of days and and you know doing some nefarious, de- guess what, man? I'm gonna do some nefarious dealings. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what I got to do because your kids got to yep. eat. So yep. this is the reality. And I'm sorry to get on my soapbox, but I think it's important that we start to maneuver to this level of conversation. Can't get so tied up in, hey, we ban chokeholds, we ban no knock warrant. Okay, that's good. We should have done that a long time ago. That's nice. But that's, I mean, that ain't helping these young folks get a better education. That's keeping them alive increasing the probability that they have a chance to life, but we ain't even get to liberty and the pursuit of happiness yet. We just talking about life. We are still talking about life. So there are absolutely things that you can do to serve as an advocate, to serve as an ally, to serve as a champion of diversity and diverse thinking that whether you work in real estate, you work in finance, you work in healthcare, you work in education, you work in consulting, within your sphere of influence, that is where the starting point is for me. And I think that's also an important message for the people that have immigrated to this country, right? Mm-hmm. That for us naturalized as citizens in this country, now that we're citizens, it is our our duty yep. to yep. Yep. first read and understand the U.S. Constitution, and then uphold, you know, what it really means, um, the ideas of diversity, equity, inclusion, and that it's not some new idea. You know, it is in the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution as well. Um, you know, these ideals, uh, especially that you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is for all. And I think that's why this country is so attractive for people to come, right? It's uh, I remember a Reagan speech that once said, you know, America is the only country you can come to, you know, live here for 10, 20 years and call yourself an American. You 
really can't do that anywhere else in the world. You know, like I said, man, I think that we are we are we are in such a beautiful time, and I know it's strange to say, but I feel like while this is a tremendously challenging time, I think it's a beautiful time because I feel like people are waking, myself included, are waking up to these conversations. They're waking up to <sighs> pushing the issue, really pushing the issue and not accepting that this is just the way that it has to be. It doesn't yeah. have to be this way. I mean, we, we make, we pass laws all the time, make decisions all the time. You know, we, as voting citizens, we have a civic duty to go and to elect officials. Yeah. You know, and, and especially at the local level as well. I mean, these, these mayors, city council members, I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road, man. And, you know, I think for me, that has really been where my mind has gone is how do I become more involved at the local level, whether it's, you know, just attending city council meetings, whether it's making sure that we don't just vote in presidential elections, but you're voting, you know, for your House of Representatives, you're, you're, you're doing your local races, you're doing all these things to make sure that we are fully exercising the rights that so many people have fought arduously for so hard. And I think that's the frustrating, that, that's one of the frustrating things right now too, is to see some of the voter suppression that is starting mm -hmm. to creep back up, yeah. you know, in 2020. I mean, we had a, we had an election here in Kentucky and that was one of the biggest challenges, voter suppression in 2020 mm -hmm. for a Senate primary. And, you know, it, it doesn't sound like a huge thing, but people, when you are working, you know, on a, on a hourly rate, you cannot afford to stand in line all day to vote. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't just take a whole day off. So these are the type of issues that I think are broadly applicable as citizens. We've talked about the professional space. Now, just as citizens in your local area, you know, these are the type of things that we should all be energized about. You know, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who wins the election, but did everyone get a chance to exercise their opportunity to, to elect someone who is reflective of the constituency in which they serve, right? Yeah. Or is this someone who is a representative of the percentage of people who had access to exercise that constitutional right? So I agree 100% with you that, you know, the things that we're talking about in this context as we talk about civic duties, we all got to be energized about that because, you know, that that pendulum could just as easily swing. I mean, I know we're focused on the African-American community right now. That pendulum could just as easily swing to you name the minority group and they mm -hmm. could be the next group in the crosshairs in terms of having rights stripped away, having opportunities not afforded to them. So I think that's why it's so important that we build these coalitions and really try to ensure that everyone has the equal opportunity to what we're saying, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Any last thoughts? For, for me, I feel like attending Haas was 
a tremendous inflection point in my life. And it shaped the way that I view myself. It shaped the role that I see myself fulfilling in the future. And it gave me deeper insight into what the world could be. Hmm. Because we got a good thing going at Haas. I mean, you go, you go to the courtyard and, you know, you can navigate life in a way in which I think a lot of people wish they could in the United States. And to be in that space with, you know, hardworking, intelligent people and to know that this is how it could be. You know, I, this, this is how the world could be, you know, people that are at their core trying to galvanize any bit of passion, energy, expertise they can to make the world a better place. That's something special. And I appreciate you for taking the time to, you know, to hear these stories, to, provide a deeper level of insight and depth to the richness that is the Haas community. You know, it, it is the reason that anytime I'm called on, you best believe, man, I'm repping team Haas all day, every day, man. I'm look, I'm, I'm, I'm out here on the front lines, man. So for you to be able to do that and to put that positive energy out there, kudos to you, man. I appreciate you, brother. And, and I thank you for, for sharing your time. I just want to say, you know, you're, you're a role model to me. And as a fresh new grad, you make me proud to be a Hossie. We got to stay passionate, man. We got to stay fired up. And, you know, as long as we can continue as alumni to pay this thing forward and, and, and make sure that every Berkeley Haas alumni has that same energy, that vibrancy, that humility, Man, I say, I say we've done our job, brother. I say that's a job well done. Amen. All right, my man. Well, I appreciate you, brother. Thanks, Kenny. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the One Haas here at Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player and give us a rating or review. You can also check out more of our content on our website at onehaas.org where you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Until next time, go Bears!